That's why, for example, with my students, I always tell them, do not try to be overprepared for today's labor market. The main skill that you need to acquire these years that you're in university and so on is adaptability. Learn how to learn new skills at every point in your life because you really don't know when you're going to need them. So learn many things in many different fields. Don't concentrate on just one narrow thing that seems to be right now the most important one uh, because it's going to disappear. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. I've been exploring recently the impacts of what I call the artificial intelligence revolution we're currently experiencing surrounding the release of ChatGPT and its rapidly expanding progeny and similar AI large language models. Today, I want to explore the economic impacts of ChatGPT gobbling up white-collar jobs in an analogous way to how robotics and automation have devastated blue-collar jobs and salaries. I originally discussed this issue in one of my first podcasts on income inequality, We Botched It, where I point out that blue-collar workers are no longer able to afford the same lifestyle of their parents and previous generations. Robotics, robotics have taken over their jobs and the proceeds of this uh, revolution, instead of being shared with the workers, has been gobbled up by business owners. We're on track right now for another similar crash amongst white-collar jobs, unless we smarten up and fix the system. And I think this is one of the most important issues facing our society today, um, this and environmental concerns. To explore the impacts of this AI revolution, I have a distinguished economist with me today who has recently published in Nature a paper called Robots, Labor Markets, and Universal Basic Income. If you do like what you're hearing, I would urge you to press like on your podcast app and help raise the profile of this podcast so that others can hear this important message. Also, if you want to discuss this, please join our Rational View Facebook group, where we can have more detailed conversations on this and other topics of interest. Antonio Cabrales has a PhD in economics from University of California, San Diego, and is a professor at Universidad Carlos III. He has been a professor at University College London and at Universitat Pompeo Fabra. He is Executive Vice President of the European Economic Association, Fellow of the Econometric Society, former President of the Spanish Economic Association, and recipient of the King Rejom I Prize in Economics in 2021. He's worked in a wide range of topics, game theory, the economics of networks, mechanism design, economics of education, experimental and behavioral economics. He's an associate editor 
of the Journal of Economic Theory and is edited and published in several economic journals and physical review letters. Dr. Cabrales, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you coming on. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you got interested in economics? Like what, why, why did you choose the field of economics to specialize in? Ah, interesting. So when I was in high school, um, I was kind of good at math. But on the other hand, uh, Spain in 1975, there was an elderly dictator who died. And luckily, we, we, you know, democracy was starting. So it was very exciting to see the country uh, evolving into a new kind of world. But actually, that coincided <clears throat> with, uh, I mean, most of your audience will have not heard about these things, but the two big oil shocks. So 1973, then 1979, uh, because of the, all the wars in the Middle East, and then the, the cartel by OPEC forms, and then they, they decide they want to exert more pressure, and they start raising the, the prices. And that gave rise to two big um, recessions worldwide that actually... Uh, sort of like the current one, increased greatly inflation, prices, unemployment. So Spain, uh, you may have heard that has very high unemployment now. It's on the order of, you know, 15%, but it's been 22% and so, so massive by European and American standards. Um, but in 1973, it has an employment rate of 2 3%. And uh, inflation was basically, you know, 2%, like in all, you know, uh, developed countries. And it went from this to massive unemployment, massive inflation in the mid-70s, right about the same time that democracy started. So, um, uh, you know, there were many people claiming, look, we lived better under Franco, so the, the general that, that died, luckily for us, in 75. Uh, so many people were kind of making claims that on the face of it, yeah, yeah if you just look at the time series, it died, Franco dies and all hell breaks loose in the Spanish economy. Uh, so I had a, because I like math, I had a bit of an analytical mind and said, hmm, this doesn't quite sound right. It's true Franco has died, but a lot of other stuff has happened in the middle. I really want to understand how all these important things for our society work. And I decided at that point that I wanted to study something that had this kind of good analytical background, but on the, on the, on the other hand, we tried to understand important social phenomena. And that's how I ended up doing economics. This was the environment of my life at the time that guided me through this. So now you are the executive vice president of the European Economic Association. Can you tell me a little bit about what the Economic Association does? Well, first of all, the name is a, a fancy name, but but basically means is I'm the secretary treasurer. It's just that uh, there's been inflation also in titles, and now everyone is a vice president or this or that. Um, uh, so you know, it's it's lowly work. So what I do for the association is I manage the internal staff, make sure that the money comes in, goes out. Now the activities that the association does, like most you know, uh, you know, scientific societies, is we publish a journal the Journal of the European Economic Association. And we have a yearly congress, uh, which is in, um, in, in August, end of August, uh, which I recommend everyone to go because it's, it's quite fun. This year it's in Barcelona. So, uh, you know, you shouldn't miss it if you're interested in economics or, yeah, interested in economics in general. And um, <clears throat> the other thing we do recently, we've organized a, a job market for academic economists uh, over the last uh, five years or so. It used to be that 
uh, European economies went to the uh, American job market, but now we've organized one and, and people uh, in young academics typically. So people just finishing their PhDs go to the job market, which now is virtual, but still it's a, it's a virtual job market where people uh, can post their, uh, their PhD papers and their CVs and so on, and universities that are interested match with them. And then eventually they maybe get invited for a visit to the campus. And, you know, from this, normally you get some offers. So those are the three main activities of the society. There are other things. We have a committee called Women in Economics that's tried to do something like a mentoring retreat for, for women in economics, a minority in economics committee. Uh, there is um, uh education committee that tries to understand how better to educate people in economics. So, oh, very interesting. So, uh, the reason I invited you on this uh, podcast is you published a paper in Nature. Congratulations! Uh, it was entitled uh, "Robots, Labor Markets, and Universal Basic Income." And in this paper, you you analyze the impacts of automation on workers and came away with some very interesting conclusions. Could you maybe give us an overview of this work and, and, and what you did? I think it might be best to start with trying to uh, talk to folks about what is universal basic income, what's interesting about it and why uh, people are potentially excited about this idea and, and, and what are the, the reasons, because this, this is, really the framework, uh, unless you think everyone knows about it, it's, it I think it's better to, no, let, to let's, start. Let's, let's go over uh, the universal basic income, because I know there's a lot of different concepts about what this entails, whether there's, like, you have to qualify for it, or if you just hand out money to everybody, is, is there a graded pay scale? What, what does universal basic income and, and how is it best implemented? So welfare programs are kind of very different in scope and in the world, you know, people have invented all sorts of things. Um, one of them is called universal basic income. And the idea under universal basic income is that everyone, just for the, you know, reason that you're a citizen of a particular state, would receive a fixed amount of money and everybody would receive it independently of whether uh, uh, they're working or not working or old or young. And in some cases, universal basic income is different for different age groups, but that's the maximum difference you can do. It's, you know, under 18, you get some amount of money, uh, bigger than 18, another amount of money. This contrast with most welfare, uh, uh, you know, programs in which usually there are things that you need to have to qualify. So sometimes uh, for example, the, the earned income tax credit, you need to be working, for example, in order to, to have it. Um, if you, many welfare programs, you might need to have a family, for example, other otherwise you don't. So uh, there's many reasons or you need to justify that you earn below a certain amount of money to receive money from the state, for example. The idea of universal basic income is you get rid of all these things. Everyone has a certain amount of money for the reason that, that you're simply a citizen of the state. Now, something that's interesting about the, the universal basic income is that even very conservative economists uh, at some point when they, the ideas started being floated were in favor of it. And the reason is that uh, some welfare programs can have a serious uh, disincentive to work for the reason that they exist. It says if you need to earn below a certain amount of money in order to uh, to get the welfare payment, 
This means that if you start working, you lose the welfare payment and this creates a disincentive to work. That now, if you want, we can talk later about what can you do in that kind of welfare program to make this uh, not so likely to happen. Uh, but that was a general idea in the minds of some economists. I said, well, you know, universal basic income will not be a disincentive to work because everyone gets it. So if you earn more, if you if you work, then you earn more money. So that's no disincentive in that respect. So that was one reason why this uh, this this program uh, kind of was favored, even among you know Milton Friedman, famously was in favor of of universal basic income, for example. Now there are two big complications to universal basic income. One we did not deal with, which is the cost. We can talk about this later if you want. The other is that even though in principle it's neutral with respect to work incentives, it really is not in the mind of uh, kind of traditionally trained economists. So most economists, in fact, I would say maybe even most people, have uh, what I would call a marginalist view of, uh, of, uh, of uh, incentives to work and so on, which basically means that uh, income, uh, the the benefit, the utility that you get from an additional uh, unit of income is different if you're earning very little than if you're earning a lot of money. So uh, think about it, you know, what would Elon Musk do with 100 extra dollars a month? Probably nothing. He, does, he, he wouldn't even notice it. It's so far down the zeros in his uh, bank account or income that they won't mean anything to it. So if you say, you know, Elon, if you earn, you know, I will pay you 100 extra dollars so that you work one hour, I'd say. He will laugh at you. Whereas if you earn very little, next to nothing, and you say, I, I, I pay you 100 extra dollars a month so that you work, uh, you know, two hours a week, you would be really excited about it because this ends up being a serious amount of money. So because of this, uh, what we call concavity in income or diminishing marginal returns of, of an extra unit of income, if people earn a lot of money, so if they, let's say, just to make the case, you know, very stark, uh, if the universal basic income was 100,000 uh, a year in income, then probably there would be some disincentives to start working, you know? because after all, you're going to get 100,000 without doing anything. Why you should can you live in luxury without working, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <clears throat> so in principle and in theory, this means that there could be a disincentive even to a program that was created or was, you know, uh, you know, the idea came just so that there was less disincentive to work as the more traditional welfare programs. So with, this is the context in which we launched the experiment. So our experiment, one of the ideas is, is it true that in fact, for kind of some amounts of money, if you pay people a fixed amount of money, they will be make less efforts. Um, and, and that was the, the idea that we tried to test in a laboratory experiment. So in the laboratory experiment, what we did is uh, two groups of people. The, the people interact um, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the experiment with the, with the experimenters for two periods. In the first period, they do some task, some sums and, uh, and uh, multiplications. I remember some basic arithmetic task, and you get paid for how many of these things you do well. And then in the second period, uh, you are told that there's some chance that you will be replaced by a machine. If you, you know, if you don't work hard enough or something, and then um, <clears throat> you're told to repeat again the level of effort and see how well you do. And then one, that's just one treatment. 
In the other treatment, it's the same thing. So first period is the same for everyone. But in the second period, in, you're told in addition, uh, oh, by the way, we're going to pay you uh, a fixed amount of, I don't remember, three euros or something like this. And you can still do your sums and your multiplications. But in addition to that, you have a guaranteed three euros extra. So that's literally what the universal basic income does. They guarantee you some income. And in addition, you can work as much as you can. Okay. And the question is, will the guarantee of having some income make people do less sums and multiplications and, you know, some arithmetic? Uh, that was the, the question the experiment tried to answer. There are a couple other questions we tried to answer, but that's the basic one. Um, and the answer was actually, no, it doesn't make any difference. Whether you pay, promise people three extra euros or no three extra euros, they're going to make the same amount of, of uh, computations. And actually, although <clears throat> um, I, we, we don't, uh, I mean, we mentioned some of this in, in the paper, this is consistent with other results people have obtained in the literature, uh, with other kinds of experiments, sometimes field experiments, and, and so on and so forth. So the disincentives, the potential theoretical disincentives to work from having a little bit extra income really don't seem to materialize uh, in in uh, you know in most of the experiments that people have done out there this is ours was particularly um how would i say uh, clean because it's a laboratory everything is very controlled so there, there are less questions than some of the other empirical work but generally my sense from the literature is the potential disincentive from universal basic income is not there because i think if you think about this for a second we're not promising anyone to earn a hundred thousand, you know, dollars or euros a month or a year. Uh, they're promised modest amounts of money. So if you promise someone, hey, instead of just being always worried about your your livelihood, we you're going to guarantee to have let's say five hundred dollars, you know, seven hundred dollars. In addition, if you earn extra money, fine, you keep it. I don't. I mean, it's hard to see how that could be a serious disincentive. Certainly in society, one of the biggest complaints we hear about against universal basic income, in, in, including the cost, of course, is that it would make workers lazy. If, if, you, if they don't have a gun to their head that they are, you know, are going to starve to death if they don't work, then why would they work in these menial jobs? Um, do you think this experiment was, a, was, was good and that it was you know, taking into account the sort of factors that would affect UBI? Or what are, are there criticisms potentially against this approach of just giving them three, three euros as opposed to... No, I totally agree. That's why I mentioned not just my experiment, but a bunch of other empirical work that has tested similar things in the field and in other settings. And it, it, sometimes it was a little bit less clean, but the the kind of the balance of the evidence seems to suggest that even if you did it in reality uh, with people that were earning, you know, some uh, modest amounts of, you know, universal basic income, yeah, I, like I said, in the order of, I think the, the standard idea is to have universal basic income, a guarantee at what's usually considered the uh, poverty threshold level in most societies, which tends to be something like 60% of median income. Uh, so you guarantee that amount of money to everyone, and then on top of that, you can earn whatever you want. For the experiments that have been done in other places in the, in, in, uh, kind of in the field, 
they seem to suggest that that kind of guarantee is not really a disincentive. Because if you think about it, like, you know, in Spain, earning 600 euros a month, life is shit, really. I mean, uh, pardon my French, as you say, but <laughs> if you could earn 300 more euros, of course you would try to earn 300 more euros. So the, the complaints about uh, disincentives to work come from people that, I've never lived in that kind of life. And of course, don't understand the pressures of it. And uh, I would tell to these people, you know, why don't you spend a few months earning, you know, 600, you know, universal basic income and nothing else. And then see what happens if someone offers you some kind of decent work. Mm-hmm. And some of the other um, discussions around universal basic income uh, are that, you know, perhaps this simplifies the welfare uh, you know, takes out some of the um, the bureaucracy to distributing welfare with a bunch of rules that you need to apply. Uh, so it actually, you know, saves some money in sort of the bureaucracy that would be necessary to oversee it if it's just a flat uh, fee across the board. And I understand, I like the, the benefit of the flat payment because as you say, it has it doesn't have any disincentives for work. It doesn't affect people that are uh, that are well off uh, at all. You know, it's a, a minor impact on their overall living, but it could have a major impact on people that are that are just getting by. And I think some of the benefits of this, uh, in terms of um, feedback into society, of, of getting rid of the stress and allowing people to have, you know, to maybe eat better, to take some of the pressure off the healthcare system, for example. Uh, when, you know, you have to choose between, you know, food and heat, for example, um, with with energy prices the way they are. So I, I, I think the universal basic income theory of welfare is 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 probably a very good one. Now, in in your um, understanding, does universal basic income replace a lot of the welfare uh, machinery in the state or is it in addition to that? It should because... I mean, it, universal basic income is very expensive. Uh, so unless it does that, like replace all the machinery of the welfare state, and in addition, probably, uh, you know, one would one would still need a lot of income to kind of uh, get away with it. But uh, in addition, you would need the extra benefits coming from, as you say, diminished uh, impact on the on the healthcare system and. Uh, potentially uh, education, maybe even productivity in the long run. Now, I cannot imagine that, let's say, the 20% of people uh, or 30% of people that are earning less money in in the most developed societies, there could be, you know, lots of hidden geniuses there that never flower because they never have a chance. And imagine what we can do with, you know, 30% more of uh, really talented people running companies or or being, you know, medical doctors or, or engineers or, or physicists or what have you, um, there, there would have to be some uh, extra uh, benefit in there. What about impact on, say, crime rates? Is there any research that supports an impact of universal basic income on decreasing crime rates? Yes, I, th- I think there is, although I cannot remember a a paper on the top of my head, but this is another of the things that is is claimed. And I mean, if you think about it a little bit, um, we we know that 
that um, so societies like you know Nordic societies uh, in in Europe have far less crime than than others. You know, once you control for for a lot of other factors, and uh, lower inequality is known to be beneficial for uh, reduction of crime. So, uh, the lowering in inequality and especially the lowering in poverty uh, certainly has has got to uh, have uh, you know good impacts on on crime. Yeah. Now, getting back to to your paper, uh, I, I skim skimmed through that. Uh, you actually explored in that work the possibility of a robot substitution tax in that work, if you recall. Uh, can you explain what what that is and how that would work? That's right. So, um, the idea is that one of the reasons why universal basic income is floated as a you know potential solution to social problems. Uh, is the fact that there, with some likelihood, artificial intelligence is going to eat into some jobs, especially, in fact, uh, middle-income jobs. So maybe not so much at the lower tier of the of the you know distribution or even higher tier of the distribution. But so there will be maybe not necessarily some unemployment that some people displaced temporarily from work. And uh, one thing that's been floated is maybe, and uh, we need to have some kind of, uh, let's say, you know, um, disincentive for for the very quick introduction of robots, so that uh, unemployment doesn't grow fast, or at least people have a, a chance to adjust and move out of the jobs that are going to disappear and go elsewhere into the into the system. And uh, and so what we we tested is the possibility that the managers that are running the the robots, uh, in the when they're facing the choice of whether replacing one of their workers and and hiring a, a robot, they have to pay some extra money for the replacement. Uh, and and we saw that in fact you know as wouldn't be very surprising, if you put a neck a tax on the robots, the, the introduction of robots is uh, is less quick and. Uh, that would probably happen in reality. So, if people that were hiring, uh, you know, firing people and then uh, then buying robots that were made to pay some extra tax, then uh, the tax could pay for the retraining of workers for those workers that are that are replaced, and and at the same time, would probably slow it slow the process down a little bit. Have to say, by the way, that economists have been guilty of saying, okay. More automation and more productivity is good for the economy. Same as uh, maybe 30 years ago, we were saying that more international trade is probably good for the economy. Uh, what we didn't anticipate is that international trade in many developed economies, you know, I'm sure in the United States, I'm not quite sure Canada, but, but certainly the United States destroyed a lot of manufacturing jobs. Uh, to a large extent, those went to China. And this happened very quick. So the the speed at which this happened, although yes, you know, international trade bigs rewards and makes society richer, it happened so quickly that there was no time to reallocate people, and there were some generations of, of workers that were completely destroyed, didn't have time to. Um, so there are now even some prominent prominent trade economists that are saying maybe next time around that something that is similar to this happens, we should be a bit more careful, and that's one of the reasons why this is thought as a potential uh, tool, policy tool. I find this a little bit ironic. I, re I mean, I remember 
you know, thinking, boy, I can't wait for the industrial revolution where we get robots and artificial intelligence to do our work for us and we'll have uh, tons of leisure time on our hands, you know. Uh, but now we're paying people not, or we're, we're making people pay to not implement this so that people can work longer in menial jobs. It, it just strikes me as very ironic that our system is set up that this is what we need to do. Well, but, but I mean, if you think about this, it's true, but it's sometimes they're not quite menial jobs. So uh, think of the banking industry. The, there's been massive reduction of, of work in the Spanish banking industry over the last, uh, you, know, you know, 15 years or so. Uh, these were people that had kind of sort of interesting jobs. Uh, they were maybe analyzing, you know, uh, you know, the, the balance sheets of firms deciding where to give, uh, to give them loans or not. And they were doing work that for them felt meaningful and they were doing something with their lives. The truth is much of this work can now be done by AI better than humans. Um, <clears throat> so, so it's fine. It has to go. Uh, the only, the only point we are making is maybe you need to make it go a little slower so that these people can retrain and move into other areas where they are needed more. And the data analysts uh, that are kind of programming stuff for, for, for those same machines, I don't know, but um, making the process a little bit smoother than, than we did it the last time when we said, okay, let's move all manufacturing to China and, and, and then we'll see. Um, yeah, no, I mean, as, as chat GPT rolls out, we can see that whole industries are going to be losing ground in terms of, you know, the work they do is going to be replaced by the software and even software like programming, software engineering is going to be uh, somewhat impacted by, by artificial intelligence. We, we can see this now. So, so what are the employment impacts that we can expect to see in coming years? If this, if this follows the pattern that we might expect. What would what should we expect to see in terms of the economy and, and jobs? So, no, absolutely. The, um, we're going to see some serious reductions in in employment in in many industries, and in, and in particular, there there's been uh, so some people like David Otter at MIT, for example, has created these indices. Um, of jobs that seem more at risk from AI than others. And, uh, and this, you know, he is categorized on. So now there's some complete classification of, uh, jobs at, uh, very fine, uh, industry levels and, and some numbers that are attached to the possibility of one can lose jobs in this. And, and there are many, many industries where, where it's going to be a serious, uh, changes and reductions and people that are not going to be needed. Um, so, for example, if you are a radiologist, uh, you know the you the interpretation of a of, you know of a scanner from a from a you know a magnetic resonance uh, scan or something, it's going to be made much better by AI very soon than than by the actual radiologist, and there's less need of them. Uh, many uh, legal employees that are making good amounts of money and so on, they're, they're going to disappear. So there are many industries that right that up until relatively recently were seemed protected from, uh, from the intrusion of, of robots are going to be, uh, suffering a hit. And then of course 
you know, jobs will appear elsewhere. So we've seen in all along the all the industrial revolutions that jobs are destroyed, jo- jobs appear. So <clears throat> all the all the things that I've seen in uh, by by labor economists say that it's not clear that unemployment rates will go up necessarily. Um, in fact, the, the the prediction is they will not go up. But there will be serious employment reallocation. So some people will have to lose their jobs or will be reallocated to other uh, jobs. And it's the, it's the reallocation process that is really the concern. So a lot of the welfare ideas that are appearing, they are to somehow ease the reallocation rather than uh, prevent it because there's, no, there's really no way to prevent it. This will happen. It, it will also devalue employment in some of these fields, right? I mean, people who are getting a, a good salary are now going to be competing against uh, AI um, autom- automation effectively. And I, I know in the history of blue collar, this is this devalued blue collar jobs. When when robots were brought in to replace blue collar jobs, I would expect a similar thing would happen in white collar jobs. That the the whole job field will be devalued and people will be making less and the people who are running the AIs are going to drag in the profits. Does that seem reasonable? It's it's quite possible, yes. So there, <laughs> there will be people that uh, um, whose jobs will seem uh, less useful, less important, and they will lose a lot of their value. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, almost... Uh, that's why, for example, with my students, I always tell them, do not try to be overprepared for today's labor market. Uh, the main skill that you need to acquire these years that you're in university and so on is adaptability. Be able to learn, learn how to learn new skills at every point in your life because you really don't know when you're going to need them. So learn many things in many different fields. Uh, don't concentrate on just one narrow thing that seems to be right now the most important one uh, because it's going to disappear. So if, if we look at um, trends in productivity over the years due to robotics and and presumably this is also going to happen as a result of AI, from, from I think 1970 to the present, the average productivity per hour worked has more than doubled for each worker, yet the number of hours worked has had to increase because the the value has has gone down due to competition with the robots, due to offshoring competition with uh, lower standard of living countries. So we're producing a lot more, but we're making a lot less money. And I think this is just going to continue to aggregate aggravate this inequity. The 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 advantages of of the automation are concentrated in the hands of the business owners, uh, the 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 0.1% of the populace, shall we say, and this is I think led to massive unrest, and uh, you know people want to just tear down the institutions of Western democracy, and there's a huge growth in in anger due to this increase in equity. And I think the situation is going to be aggravated by AI. What can we do to prevent further inequity? Is, is UBI uh, critical to, to doing this? Not really, in the sense that... So first, to, to answer your, your, uh, your first remark, it's true. Uh, there's been a massive uh, amount of, um, 
of increasing productivity that has not gone into salaries. There's a, a book that I recommend everyone to read if you can. It's called The Profit Paradox from uh, Jan Eckhout. He's a you know, Dutch professor that works in Barcelona. It's published by Princeton University Press. Uh, happens to be a friend, but I'm recommending it because it's a really good book. And one of the things that, that struck me when I read this book is uh, it has some graphs uh, that show how uh, wages per hour have changed over time. The average, the median, not the average, the median uh, w- uh, wage per hour has grown and, and how profit margins have, uh, have changed over the last uh, 30 years. It's actually quite remarkable. So median wages have, in fact, in, ma- in many places gone down. Uh, the, the margins the, of corporations have massively shot up. But the, the funny thing is, it's not even the profit margins of the representative company. It's the profit margins of a very few companies that have shot up. Now, what's interesting about this is that the solution for this potentially is not that hard. Uh, we should pay a lot more attention to competition policies. Think about mergers and, and which mergers we allow, we allow which mer- mergers we don't. Uh, we should regulate the hell out of some companies that are monopolists. I mean, if you're a monopolist, you should be regulated. If you if you don't want to be regulated, let's destroy the monopolies and, and kind of partition the companies into different pieces so that they can compete more with one another. So I think that the problem with uh, with uh, capitalism is, is, is we have over the last 30 years, it's become a, a monopolistic capitalism. Uh, so it's a lot less competition in some key industries that there used to be. And that's not healthy. Uh, so the predominance of a very few big companies that at the same time end up having a lot of a lot of power and uh, being able to manipulate governments and so on, uh, that's that's not healthy at all. Uh, by the way, inequality has not grown equally in all developed countries. Um, I mean, I think maybe one reason why why Jan studied this is if you look at the the Gini index, a measure of standard measure of inequality in the Netherlands, it hasn't grown that much, or it's you know, basically stable over time. Whereas in Spain or the US, uh, I don't know Canada as well, but uh, this has you know really gone up over the years. Uh, so this has to do with the power that big companies have had over over the state and the political system. So um, yes, universal basic income is a tool, but uh, to a certain extent, it can be a tool to lull uh, people into complacency and, and to avoid. It's like the Palamatic census that the that the Roman Empire did. It's just give bread to the poor so that they don't they don't rebel. Uh, actually, in some sense, uh, I would like people not to get universal basic income to see if they if they you know react and, and get rid of the of the plutocrats that are that are governing various countries and uh, oh, interesting that might be one one alternative way to think about this uh, interesting so um you know how how do we get rid of the plutocrats what's other than violent revolution what we we elect we elect more radical politicians i think that's the that's the idea um, so we need to highlight these issues and and get them on the agenda for discussion and uh, talk to the media and get the media on board, although the media are probably owned by the same folks that uh, don't want to be displaced. Well, but this is the, this is the work that one can do through social media. It's the kind of work that, that you do, for example, that it's, you know, you're on your own and you do stuff like that. So uh, there is a possibility. And I think that uh, it's the grassroots movements that 
can be in principle, uh, you know, leveraged through through social media can can make a big difference. Okay, so that's interesting. So your position is that um, regulating of of certain industries is is probably the the best way to go to uh, to improve the situation and, and minimize the inequity. Yeah, it's either regulating them or breaking up the all the kind of big uh, companies that are. So, uh, just to give you an idea, um, when when I was growing up, there were what were called the seven big banks in Spain. Of these seven big banks in Spain, there are now only two, and in fact, that even understates the problem because there were a lot of banks below them, below this big seven that where people were kind of normal customers that now don't exist at all. There were lots of saving banks that went, you know, under in the in the last uh, Great Recession. Uh, so now the level of competition in the banking industry in Spain is like it's like ridiculous. Um, it almost doesn't exist, and it has been allowed by uh, government after government, both from the left and the right. And uh, um, in Europe as a whole, they, you could do more. So we have uh, Amazon pays essentially zero uh, tax profits in Spain. Why? Because they're they're headquartered in in the in the uh, in Ireland. Ireland has very low uh, profit taxes. Uh, so what do they do? The, the mother company in Ireland charges a lot big transfer pricing for the intellectual property to, to Amazon Spain. Uh, so essentially what this means is that that siphons out the, the profits from Amazon Spain into Amazon Ireland. In Ireland, they don't have to pay anything. So where, 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 where does all those profits rather than in the taxes that they should really pay? It ends up in the profit of the Amazon uh, uh, shareholders, who are, as you say, the 0.1 uh, richest uh, percent of richest people in the world. Uh, now, European Union could have it easily. If we vote the right people to European Parliament, we could set, you know, taxation, more uniform taxation rules about in Europe. I mean, it's true, you could have slightly different tax rates, but you know, having certainly basically next to no uh, profit taxes in the in Ireland, whereas in everywhere in Europe where you try to tax more, well, you're, you're creating this incentive for these large corporations that have the capacity to send uh, money from one place to the other. That's interesting, uh, and I think that's that's a very good observation. That the the online shopping taxation has, has taken money out of the system that used to be there uh, for for governments uh, for local governments. Now, another another thing I want to touch on is you know the fact that we've lost competition in a lot of industries. I think is a is a feature built into the the system of uh, increasing profit margins for investors, right? The, once you've saturated a market with businesses, the only way to move out is to co- outcompete your competitors, to gobble them up and to get bigger. And, and you, this is almost um, a requirement. Once you get a certain size, you have to start swallowing up other businesses uh, to to remain, to keep the, the growth rate you know, on the proper uh, trajectory to to get the returns. Is is there anything that can be done? Is that just a part of the system? But that's no, exactly. That's that's exactly why the first thing I said as a as a as a policy tool is uh, we have competition authorities in all developed countries, and sometimes European Union has its own competition policy authority. Most mergers in tech industry and most acquisitions probably should not be allowed 
because they're decreasing competition in 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 those industries, which already has relatively little competition. So, um, a more active uh, competition policy authority all around the world would be a a good, a good thing for avoiding some of the problems. I've also heard, uh, and I don't know whether this is. I mean, it seems reasonable, but I've also heard that going to more uh, non-profit. Uh, type of industry or employee-owned uh, businesses would, would end this problem as well. But there doesn't seem to be uh, a way to get from here to there. Uh, have you heard about that as a, as a potential solution to this problem? Yeah. So that, that, might, that might help as well, because if you, have, if you give more power in the boards of companies to workers, uh, that would easily lead to a better distribution. Uh, so Germany is a good case because they have workers have to be represented in the board of companies with a certain percentage. It's not even a minor one. And uh, <clears throat> you can see that the levels of inequality in Germany are more contained because the, the kind of the, the bargains, the, the wage bargains that the unions do with the companies in Germany are much, much, much more serious. That's something else that we could, our elected representatives could decide, look, you know, you, you have to put workers on your board. Unions have to have seats in the board. Um, sometimes if they don't have a majority, you can think, well, maybe, you know, they're a majority and, and they're not a majority, they don't have enough power. But simply having them sit there and share all the information might be useful because they might be able to say, you know, this, some of the things these guys are doing are really disgusting and they can go to the Competition Policy Authority, for example. Um, they might have more of an incentive to do so. Um, so who knows, but, I mean, certainly more representation of, of, uh, workers in, in company boards might not be a bad idea at all. Of course, if in addition, they are not just represented in the board, but they own shares in the companies, that's also probably a good idea. Now, the, the only risk about that is if you do this through putting pension, uh, parts of the pension pot in the, in the company shares. That can be dangerous. You remember when the when the saving and loans scandals in the in the U.S. hit? One of the problems was that many uh, employees of saving and loans lost all their money, and and uh, that was ridiculous. And this is because the companies more or less forced them to put some big part of their pension funds in the in the company shares. Uh, I mean, you know, um, so that can be tricky in some cases. So I can see why. Sometimes the workers themselves, the union representatives themselves, sometimes resist the idea of having big shares in the company if this is at the expense of the money that they normally would put into, into their pension funds. So one has to be a bit careful with this, with this idea. I think one possibility would be to have the, the, the unions themselves manage pension funds and they... The, the, the whole money, it's, it's organized by the unions and the unions, because they have a big pension fund attached to the union and then they invest, that's better because, because the, the unions get to be represented in the boards as kind of big shareholders, activist shareholders even, but they would be diversified. So I think the key is if we want to do this uh, employee ownership, do it in a way that doesn't make the, 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 the workers themselves tied with a large proportion of their or their savings to a particular company. That sounds like a a wise uh, approach to it. Um, I agree that uh, 
there's a lot that needs to be done to to fix the problem. We've really gone to the to the inequity end of the uh, of the Gini curve, as it were. Um, what what is popular opinion in Europe regarding uh, universal basic income? Is this something that is 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 a realistic thing to to expect could happen, or is it just too far out of the the Overton window to be considered? Well, it's a good theoretical idea to keep in mind. Uh, the one thing we didn't talk about, and I think it's, it is a good ba- point to, to bring it in, is the cost of this. Uh, in Spain, it's been calculated that um, in order to have universal basic income, that um, that actually it's at the level of 60% of the, of the median uh, wage, which is the kind of the poverty line. Uh, that's going to that's going to cost something like twenty five percent of GDP, even taking into, into account the consolidation of all the welfare payments. So that's already incorporated in there. Um, so that is not something that realistically is going to happen. That's why, uh, in principle, although there are many parties. So, for example, the you know the the Podemos party in Spain, which is kind of to the left of the Socialist Party. And all, all these coalitions, it's Podemos and some of the other kind of parties that are to the left of Socialist Party, they're they're very um, <clears throat> very favor favorable to universal basic income. I mean, I think in the last elections of Catalonia, the current co- regional government was allowed to pass only on the condition that they lead that they did a serious pilot on universal basic income. So the idea is very popular. It's just that I don't think it's realistic at least in the short run, given the budgetary constraints. Uh, That's why other forms of welfare, like uh, negative income taxes, for example, that are more affordable might be a a better idea. Some consolidation of welfare programs uh, in a way that was less, uh, less kind of give less disincentive to work. So that's why uh, negative income tax is good because the disincentives to work are, are less than the normal welfare programs. But other ideas in that direction that lower the complexity. In fact, this is one way where, since you're interested in AI, uh, information technology would be a good way to try to to uh, deal with this in Europe. This idea of uh, it's sometimes it's difficult. People are poor; they're difficult to get, and so on. Uh, they may not sign up for the program. They may not know how to sign up for the program, but. Um, information technology, artificial intelligence would be good tools to try to incorporate people that are kind of outside the system and try to make sure that they they get some help from the system in any case. And that's the alternative route that has been followed, at least by the Spanish government, is trying very hard to... Um, uh, they've, they've created a minimum, it's called uh, Ingreso Minimo Vital, so a minimum vital income, which basically is a conglomeration of former, uh, uh, you know, welfare programs and try to make it easy to enroll. And I think that's a more realistic approach. And uh, I mean, even Podemos now in government is supporting it as a, well, let's say, let's start with this. Let's see how far we go in getting more people in the welfare system unenrolled, make it easy to enroll, make it easy to, to locate them. And then uh, over time, depending on, on how the budget goes, we might go into more ambitious uh, ideas. Interesting. So that's, I mean, so your opinion is that UBI is is too a cost too far that uh, the governments would never uh, go for that. And I, I think I agree. It, it's just 
overwhelmingly expensive at this point. Um, and you, I've seen uh, analyses from, from certain organizations like UBI Works saying, yes, we can pay for it with these particular changes. You know, we save, we're going to have savings in, in bureaucracy for welfare. We're going to have savings in healthcare. We're going to have, uh, we have to increase corporate taxes or we have to increase taxes on the wealthy. That's right. All of these things have to go together. You would need a serious increases in taxes and a lot of savings and efficiencies in order to do that. So uh, I would go first for let's make the, the fiscal system stronger by you know being able to get more money and at the same time work on the efficiencies. Uh, that the efficiencies can come already from the standard welfare programs if they are better run. So once you start building up better ways to get the cash and more savings, you can progressively uh, become more ambitious. Uh, but I'd see this as a kind of long-term goal rather than an immediate uh, thing that you can do. Yeah. And in the short term, I still see, uh, agree with you that there's going to be uh, a very fast transition again, similar to the robotics um, uh, innovation you know, when, when AI rolls in, there's going to be a lot of people out of work looking for jobs. And this is something that, you know, what can we do in the short term, you know, if we don't have governmental change? I mean, that, that happens on long time scales, right? And to, to, to how, do, how do we cushion this, this blow that's coming to us? What, what are the short term things we could do? So I think that the key, at least for a country like Spain, is work on, on three things at the same time. One is Make sure that training for the young is done uh, so that they don't have to face this problem, so that they they are trained not for the world of today, but for the world of tomorrow. And this, this requires the whole educational system to be uh, rejigged. Um, the other thing is that you need a lot of retraining for people that will be losing their jobs, but actually also retraining on the job for people that maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the day after, but in 10 years from now, they're going to suffer from, from this. <clears throat> and there, with, there is an opportunity in, in both of these dimensions because the number of students, both at college and, uh, and below, in most developed countries is going to be decreasing over the next few years. Spain is a particularly... A uh, good case, good in quotations, because the population is, you know, is, is a disaster. So we, we have a very low birth rate. But this creates an opportunity to kind of use the extra resources the education system has to kind of retrain lots of people. Um, and then those are the kind of more proactive measures. But we also need the, the actual cushion is so for the people who lose their jobs. In addition to retraining, uh, we're going to have to, to just give them money while they retrain uh, so that they don't they don't lose the capacity to contribute to the to the system in the future yeah i think um we should also think about how uh, ai is going to work with society i mean this is something that is at this point is available to everybody and gives you it's effectively going to be like a, i think an assistant to make each per could make each person more effective uh, and sure, you, you know, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs because you're going to need less people to do the same work in, in certain jobs, but it also opens up possibilities. So I think that's something that we could, could also envision helping a lot of people uh, into new lines of work or into new, 
and to being able to do more things. So, I, you know, I'm I'm somewhat optimistic on on you know working with AI has a lot of very interesting benefits in terms of labor saving and 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 you know getting rid of the the sort of simple work that that is is mind numbing. Um, but at the same time, by getting rid of that work, you're not getting paid for that work. Uh, so it, it's a, it's a catch 22, a, a little bit. It's, it's, I, I'm not sure how it's going to roll out, but I know there's going to be a significant impact on economies and jobs and, and finding out a, a way through to, to, to work through this, I think is going to be an important, um, aspect of, of coming years. Yeah, I agree. That's very, going to be very important. So, uh, I think we're running close to the end of our, our time slot. Do you have any last, uh, messages or, or ideas you wanted to, to talk about? Well, I think we've, we've covered most of the, most of the important ones. Uh, but I, I'd say something that two things that are probably important, which is, uh, I encourage people to be like open to new ideas. Just like I'm saying that the work world of today is not going to be the work world, uh, world of, uh, you know, 10 years from now, the social world of today is not going to be the one in 10 years from now. And, some ideas that look potentially ridiculous, like you know, universal basic income, haha. Who knows? Right now, maybe it's not the time, but ten years from now, might be a different world. I mean, maybe AI really lives up to the true promise, and and we don't really need to work. So John Maynard Keynes, you know, in uh, you know 1930s, said that you know people would be working two hours a day. Uh, you know, in uh, in 2020, well, it didn't work out, but, you know, who knows? Maybe, you know, in, uh, in uh, his prediction comes through 40 years from now, or 10 years from now, or 20 years from now. I don't know. The rate of change that AI is going to bring to humanity is huge. So we need to be prepared, particularly the young people who are going to live through that. They're, they need to be prepared for big changes and that requires an open mind to a whole lot of things like, you know, maybe, you know, there's policies that seem irrational now will not seem irrational 10 years from now. And uh, I think that's important. And also look out, be willing to experiment and uh, to try out new things. And when someone proposes to you, you know, just keep an open mind. I think that's very important. Well, thank you for, for your insights, Antonio. I really appreciate you coming on the show and for taking the time. Uh, I'll send you a, a Rational View t-shirt like I'm wearing here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> for taking the time. So, right. so thank you so much for coming and chatting with us. I really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. It was fantastic. Thank you very much. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.